Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love so that we can get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and this week we're talking to Lance Munguia, the writer, director, producer, cinematographer, like a guy who wore every hat on the set of Six String Samurai, which was essentially a student film writ large that became so much more thanks to Jeffrey Falcon, the Hong Kong actor and stuntman who teamed up with Mungia to write and then star in his post-apocalyptic martial arts epic where he and a crew of film students, uh, mostly from Loyola Marymount, journeyed out into Death Valley to create what they thought was the ultimate hipster martial arts mayhem. So what you should know about this interview is that this was the first interview we ever recorded for this show. You know, we came up with it while we were watching Six String Samurai because we basically looked at the screen and said, you know, we had a bunch of questions about the movie and we were like, well, why don't we just reach out and try to get in touch with Lance and see like what making this movie would was like. And to be frank, what, what essentially occurred was we found his information on LinkedIn, sent an email off into the ether and he got back to us within like a couple minutes. It was like, yeah, this idea for this podcast sounds great. Let's do it. So we ended up sitting down and recording about 50 minutes or so just diving into the production of Six String Samurai. Lance was a terrific sport and just had an, like a million stories about the making of this movie and we really hope you enjoy it because it's a, just a great interview and kind of a time capsule or at least a, a time machine in a weird way of what it was like to make indie films back in the 1990s. So enough from me. I hope you enjoy our feature-length interview with Lance Mungia, writer, director, producer of Six String Samurai. Ah, how you doing, man? Good. What part of the country are you in? I'm in Austin. Right oh, now. Austin. Okay. Awesome. I love Austin. Yeah, it, uh, I know. It's uh, kind of a big part of Six String Samurai's backstory, it sounds like, in terms of how it was even discovered with, like, Harry Knowles and everything. Yeah, we, one of the, um, one of the first festivals that it played at was South by Southwest, so, um, so we went to South by Southwest, uh, and that's where I met Harry, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the whole concept kind of behind the podcast is, Secret Handshakes. It's a whole podcast about friendships and about friendships that are basically born through movies and how you kind of form uh, your own shorthand in a way through movies. Um, so I guess my first question for you was like, can you talk to me a little bit about your friendship with uh, Jeff Falcon? And um, I read somewhere that you guys met at uh, AFM and Santa Monica, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, sure. Um, you know, uh, I used to live in. I was going to school at the time at uh, Loyola Marymount in right. uh, Westwood, and um, in, in that area, not Westwood. I'm sorry, uh, Westchester. And um, the the uh, I had done a short film um, that had done pretty well at, at festivals, and I knew several other film school students. 
that had done um, short films at Loyola Marymount. And I thought to myself, wow, this would be really cool. Um, there's this film market up the street in Santa Monica. Why don't I gather up all of these like short films? Because they were all um, like sci-fi short films. Like we had all done like, you know, in, in that genre. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. I'll put together these short films and I'll go there and I'll try to sell it. And um, I went there and I showed it to some distributors and I got familiar with kind of like the the market. Um, and I didn't I didn't uh, sell it. I mean, nothing really happened with it. But what did happen was I met a guy named Carlos Gallardo. Um, Carlos Gallardo was the star of El Mariachi. And, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez is El Mariachi, his first film, which I was a big fan of. I mean, I had met Robert Rodriguez real briefly at a screening of one of his films. And I'd seen one of the earliest screenings uh, that he did for that film. And it was a huge inspiration in, in terms of like me wanting to make my own kind of like low budget, you know, cult movie type you know vibe and um so to hang out with carlos was was a lot of fun and um another person that he had met at that same conference was jeffrey falcon who um who was there at that market marketing himself as basically a martial artist and an actor uh and a uh, potentially a producer of some stuff that he he had that he wanted to do so um uh carlos after the festival said um, hey, I've got this comedy uh, project that you got that would be great for you guys to do together. Uh, do you would you be interested in writing it? You know, um, and and me overseeing it. And so I was I didn't have anything else going on, so I thought, oh sure, that's 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 great. And um, so Jeff stayed after the festival to to work on this script with me. Uh, you know, because Carlos kind of had just like hooked us up together. Um, who knows, maybe to just get him, get us out of his way or something. I don't know. But uh, that wound up leading to Jeff staying with me for like a few weeks. I just had this like little two bedroom apartment in in uh, Westchester where I was still going to college. And um, and we spent two weeks writing and we had a, a really fun time writing this this comedy script together, um, which we then forwarded to Carlos and then that all kind of turned out to be kind of like smoke, you know, without flame. You know, there was there wasn't really a way for him to get it financed. Um, so nothing ever really happened with that project. But Jeff and I had such a good time writing together that we thought, like, well, you know, why don't we keep going? Like, why don't we, you know, write something else? And um, I had access to Loyola Marymount, you know, the college. I still hadn't done my thesis project there. Um, so I told Jeff, I said, look, you know, I've got this thesis project going i need to find something to direct um you know he had all of this amazing martial arts ability and stuff that he he could do so i said let's let's uh get together and and, and do it and um so he actually went back to hong kong and at the time this was pre-internet uh they yeah. the only way for us to communicate back and forth was fax so i would get these faxes from him you know like and and he and he was actually an excellent artist uh, you know, he, he'd draw these like little, you know, stick figures, like doing martial arts and doing stuff. Then he'd send me these faxes and, and, um, and I'd fax him back and we talked for a number of, uh, months about it. And then when it finally came time, um, you know, he, he put up $25,000, uh, from some business that he had and I took out $25,000 in loans and, and that became the, the seed money to basically, you know, start making the film. So we, and and we had originally wrote the film. Um, you know, he wanted to do obviously a martial arts movie because he was a martial artist, and I did not want to do just a standard um, kind of like B movie martial arts movie like everything else that you'd seen in in Hong Kong. I wanted to do something different, and so I was trying to figure out like what could I do that was different 
we both kind of agreed on this idea of doing a sword film because in in the genre of the martial arts films, sword films are a lot easier to shoot because you know you you uh, it's quick cuts and you know it's, you can cover up a lot of things using swords that you can't you know if you're using a different kind of a weapon and or no weapon for that matter and and um, so we we knew we wanted to do that and we came up with this kind of very standard idea to do. Uh, like kind of a Mad Max style, like apocalyptic film. Again, because we knew we could just find kind of like find uh, existing locations and like old cars and old screwed up costumes we can get from the thrift store and things like that. But what really, I was still very unsatisfied with the project because um, I just didn't want it to sound uh, unintentionally cheesy. I mean, if it's going to be cheesy, make it intentionally, you know, cheesy, you know. Sure. And and uh, and so one night, like three o'clock in the morning he and I were at some like Denny's or 24 hour diner somewhere. And we were sitting there as we were trying to uh, work on the script. Once he had, he flew back out here, you know, for that reason. And, um, and I was wearing glasses very similar to the ones I have on now. And, and, uh, um, and they were like, I was in college and I didn't have any money. So, I mean, I had like tape across them, like, you know, where they were like falling apart and like they were scratched up and, you know, and, and it was like three in the morning. And he said, you know, man, how do you, how do you see, you know, through those glasses? And I said, oh yeah, well you want to see here. And I, I took the glasses off and I handed it to him. And and I mean I have horrible vision, so I mean the prescription is terrible. And he puts them on and he goes, oh man, I, I can't see anything with these things. And and I and I stood there and I looked at him and I said, you know what? I said you sort of look like Buddy Holly. Like when when you put the glasses on, you look a lot like Buddy Holly. I said I said God, that would be hilarious, like a Buddy Holly, you know, uh, martial artist. I said like and, and I thought. And then that once we had that idea, that just like compounded into the whole idea of of uh, you know a, a film that would take place in in the 1950s, but in a but a post-apocalyptic you know um, aftermath of the 1950s, where culture kind of just got stuck that way. And and uh, yeah, so so that's a very long-winded way of answering your question as to how I met Jeffrey Falcon. But yeah, that was kind of the process. <laughs> yeah, because at the time he had mostly been in like. Cynthia Rothrock movies and stuff like female reporter and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had made another movie too. Uh, it was a short film called uh, a garden for Rio. Right. And, that, and that's how you went to Sundance to basically yes. end up right. yeah. uh, uh, shopping the movie around after shooting the trailer. Right. Yeah. What, what happened was, um, okay. So I was basically using my uncle's credit card and loans from, from school, uh, to, to make the movie, you know, at the time. And, and, um, Every week we would have a different crew. Uh, you know, we would I would recruit crew all week. You know, from the college, like just friends and whoever I could get together, and then we would go out and shoot on Saturdays and Sundays in Death Valley, like basically camp. Like you know, we would just take tents and stuff, and it would make like a weekend of it. And um, did you ever leave just like a, a like a bed of college kids just dead in Death Valley out there too? Yeah, that's another story, but I actually did. <laughs> But those weren't actually college kids. That's when we really tried to do it. Oh, okay. Versus like October. Like October, not a problem to shoot in Death Valley. May, big problem, you know, to shoot in Death Valley in May. But, um, but you know, getting getting back to your, your question, um, I, I think that uh, – oh, God, what was the question now? I totally, like, lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. You had basically gone out and uh... – you had made a, a garden for Rio, and that's oh, how right. we, you were shooting the trailer to take the sun. Right, right, right. So, so uh, Garden for Rio was my first film. Um, when when I was originally a teenager, and I was like looking at different film schools, 
Um, the thing that was the most important to me was that you were guaranteed to actually get to make films. Um, like I could have gone to USC. Uh, there, you're not guaranteed to make a film or, or get access to equipment or anything. It's a kind of a, comp a competitive process. Uh, Loyola let you do pretty, pretty much whatever you want. just kind of like left you alone. Um, and we were supposed to do a non-sync project for our first film project. Uh, and I wound up doing a, um, a synced film because I wanted to do something that I felt could really play well in festivals and stuff. And, and it was going into college from the very beginning. I had this goal that first I would make a short film and then I would – like kind of catapult that to make a feature film as my sure. final project, you know? Um, so that was always kind of like using this kind of El Mariachi formula of just kind of like, what can I do with the least amount of money and how can I make it all work? You know, um, that was my, my goal. So I did the first film and, um, and that took quite a long time to finish. Probably took me over a year to, to complete that film. Um, and I had just started submitting it around to different festivals when I started shooting Six String Samurai with with Jeff and and uh, Christian Bernier, my cinematographer, on that film, and um, and we were running out of money on Six String Samurai. Actually, um, like you know, I had spent, I maxed out my uncle's uh, credit card. I was like running out of money because it, mainly the biggest expense was just travel and and like developing film stock because we got all of the film stock donated from Fuji. They gave us these hundred hundred foot rolls of crash cam um, film that was expired. And I mean like hundreds of thousands, as much as we possibly wanted. I basically just went to Fuji and asked um, and they gave it to me, but, but uh, it was expensive to do all that stuff. And basically I was totally out of money. My last trip to death Valley, we got kicked out. Uh, the Rangers uh, caught us like someplace that we weren't supposed to be and they kicked us out and I wasn't going to be able to get back in unless um, I paid some exorbitant fees and I had a Ranger present and all this stuff. So that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I was literally on the way home from Death Valley, I believe, and I was like so depressed and I got the phone call that my short film had gotten into Sundance. And and uh, um, so be quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I, I uh, um, and that was the first you know place that we had sent it out to to be in a festival and um so that changed everything then i was able to basically take the dailies that i had developed um because i had uh, work print i mean it was all being edited on film so so i had work print that was developed and i would take the work print and i cut it up and on a on a flatbed moviola and and uh we put it all together uh, as a trailer you know and i and i cut together I don't know, a two or three minute trailer for this film um uh, and and that's when there was another um, afm coming up it was like a year later so like i met jeff at one afm and then now it was the next year so i thought like well let's take this film i have some experience now with afm uh let's let's take the trailer and see if we can actually sell it and then get the movie the the, the funding to finish the film because really at that point i had probably only shot about 20 25 percent of the actual finished product that you see in the, you know, now. Um, so it still needed a lot more work. And um, so at AFM, um, what we would do is we would stand down in the lobby. And if you've ever been in the Lowe's hotel in, in Santa Monica, there where they have the AFM, it's this huge hotel that inside you look up and you can see like 10 stories of balconies on the inside. And, and, and the higher up you go on the floors, the, the, the bigger the film companies. 
you know, and, and you have on in the lobby, it's like steerage on Titanic. You know, you've got like all these people in the lobby <laughs> to just kind of mull around. They're like, you know, the working class that like can't get up to the top tiers, you know, and they all kind of stand around and they talk about their films and they pitch each other and everybody acts like they are, are big, big shots, you know, and, and you're just in, 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 which I really didn't like that whole process, but, but it was like just something that, that you do. But what we would do is because, um, at that point, I had a film now in Sundance. Um, I would sit down in the lobby and I would open up the, the uh, you know, the, the catalog of the different companies at the AFM. And I would look and I would say, OK, well, here's uh, Miramax and here's the number and the room number for Miramax. And then I would call up and I would say, um, hey, I'm, my name's Lance Mangia. I'm a director and I'm a writer. Um, I have a short film at Sundance, you know, and, and I'm working on my next feature film. And just saying that was so much more valuable than anything I, I got out of actually going to Sundance. I mean, just saying you had a film at Sundance was much more effective in helping to get the next project made. And sure. uh, and almost invariably, if I called 10 people, probably five or six would say, sure, come on up. I'll, I'll get you a badge and, and you can come up and we'll, I'd love to see your trailer. I'd love to see your, you know, what you're doing. And, and uh, so that's what I would do. And then once you get the badge to go up to that floor up high, well, now you're up there, so you can walk around to all the other booths and then poke your head in and be like, "Hey, I have a film. Would you like to see it?" And and um, you know, you know, and I actually did the same thing at Sundance. I actually brought the trailer to Sundance when I played, and I didn't get much interest at Sundance because I just couldn't get anybody to come to like my hotel room, like a, you know, like serial killer or something, and like look at the page, <laughs> you know. So so it was like very hard to do. But but at at AFM, um, we gave out lots of copies of the film. And we became like this sort of like buzz project at the film market uh, because, uh, you know, after that, I, I mean, I got like something like 40 different companies all saying that they wanted to to give money to complete the film. And and meanwhile, I'd also reached out to different agents and stuff and never gotten a response from anybody. And um, and then all of a sudden I had meetings lining up with like Orion and Universal and Sony and, or, uh, you know, like just all these different uh, companies at the time. And um, I didn't know what to do because I didn't know like what was real, what wasn't. Like I had some foreign companies that, that I'd met with that wanted to, to complete the film. So we, we basically, I called back uh, Cassie and Elway's office in at William Morris um, at the time um, and his assistant, Hans Schiff at the time, uh, picked up the phone and I said, yeah, you know, I submitted a copy of, of my uh, trailer to you guys and I'm looking for representation. And um, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're much too busy. We can't even deal with that right now. And I said, I said, well, I said, I have meetings set up with Orion and Summit Films and, you know, Universal and, you know, and I don't know what to do. You know, maybe you can help me. The guy's like, wait, 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 what what'd you say your name was again? You know, <laughs> and, and, and he literally like found a tape I went into a meeting. I was actually calling him on my way into a meeting at Summit Films, and and I was in the meeting with Summit Films, and and uh, I got a call back from William Morris with Hans Schiff, and Hans was like, who now by the way is one of the is another agent at, at CAA, but anyway, he he started um, saying you know, like we want to sign you right here, you know like right now like we'll sign you, you know like we want to represent you. Don't sign any deals. Well, let let us look at it, you know. So so we did. We signed with them. And then he found basically two companies that were none of the companies we were even talking to. Uh, and and then we got to choose between those two companies as to who was going to put up like basically a million bucks uh, to complete the film. So so the film's budget itself was about a million and uh, which was still actually 
much, much harder to do than it was when we didn't have any money. You know, because when we didn't have any money, if we got it, great. If we didn't, that's okay. I mean, we would just go for like perfection and what we wanted. Uh, as soon as there was money, it was like, you got to get it done like right now. So, so it was a, a whole other kind of filmmaking, but um, yeah. But yeah with your uncle's credit card anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was able to pay him back after that, you know, but, but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, um, so it really worked out because we were on such, and it actually worked to our advantage because we were working with a kid and because we were running into summer, um, we needed to shoot. We had a very small window. This is a very stupid way to make a film, by the way, but we had a very small window to actually get funding and, and, and finish it because if, if we didn't um, by May get out to Death Valley by July, I mean, it's way too hot. Like you cannot be out there. And, and we had an eight year old, you know, uh, on the cast. So, so if, <laughs> you know, now we're going to come back like a year later and his voice has changed and like, you know, it's like, it's not going to work at all. And so everything we had done to that point would have been lost. And, and um, so that actually worked to our advantage because people had to work very quickly, you know, um, to make the deal with us and turn it around and, and then get back out there and be shooting. And, and we did. So we were, we were out there by May, uh, you know, and, and just took maybe like a month or so off, you know, um, from not having money to having money. It was like from December, you know, Sundance in January and then and then uh, back out there in May. So yeah, you, you hustled your way into making a million dollar movie, basically. Yeah. 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 You know, you know, and it was a very rare time because now you can't even I don't know if you could even do this film the way we did it and 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 uh find someone to finance it uh at that level now you know like it was just a different industry back then well yeah because i remember um like paul thomas anderson telling stories about getting like hard eight made originally mm -hmm. to where it was just basically like hustling like coffee and cigarettes around and actually meeting with uh producers and stuff and and, and making those kind of deals to where like you the money just kind of came as what as you kind of talked your way into it almost yeah you know one of the things that um i did learn from jeff falcon um was that he i was always amazed at how he was able to get into meetings uh you know because he i mean maybe it was because he was working in hong kong and he had this kind of mystique as being you know um, a hong kong uh actor or producer uh, or whatever it was but he he would just call up like whoever it was it was the highest person you can call at a given company and then try to schedule a meeting. And, and yeah. oftentimes, believe it or not, he, he'd be able to do it. And, and we did get a lot of good meetings and stuff with people. It didn't ever amount to anything really. It, it took like William Morris and Han Schiff, you know, in, in particular, uh, you know, to really focus us and, and, and make it work. Because one of the things I think about the film industry is that you can spend years and years and years, your entire life really, just running around in circles, talking to people, you know, talking about what great things you've done and then having them say, yeah, maybe this is going to work. Maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that. And then, you know, you're it's like a carrot dangling in front of you uh, and, and then it doesn't get done. And um, I think that in our case, it, it was like kind of like the immediacy of it that, that and the fact that we had already really done some good work, that it kind of made it work in the end. You know? Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and what's interesting, too, is that you you combined that sort of old school 90s hustle with a technology that was emerging, which was the Internet, frankly, yeah. because one of the, the, the first 
um, let's say indie films to really utilize the internet to, to kind of get the word out all the way to like getting the title changed from the blade. Right. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't really because of the internet. That was actually cause, cause yes, the original, the original, um, thing that we did was call it the blade. Like, you know, the original copy of the script was the blade. And, uh, that was right when Wesley Snipes was then going to come out with blade, you know, and, and we actually got a letter from Marvel, uh, saying, you know, um, please, you know, don't, you cannot use this title, you yeah. know? And, and so, and so we changed it and that's, that's when we came up with six string samurai, you know, um, which I, I think is a cooler title, but, but, uh, way cooler title. Yeah. Blade yeah. actually sounds like a movie that you were describing at first because like that would fit more of like, uh, almost like an American, like lone wolf and cub, which at times, yeah you can feel like the lone wolf and cub kind of elements bleeding into like your post-apocalyptic road warrior uh, scenario. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, you're, you're right though. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, um, that was the name of the movie before it became more interesting. You know, like when, when it was called the blade was when we were, you know, and see, I was constantly fighting Jeff Falcon's instincts uh you know from his hong kong acting days you know and writing days there because it's like incredibly on the nose you know it's like and and it's like i was trying to make like a more uh american more subtle version of what he was doing in hong kong not just flipping it and doing the exact same thing and making a straight up hong kong movie i wanted to do a more of a informed movie um, you know, which which was taking advantage of what was done in Hong Kong, but wasn't exactly the same. So so that was a lot of our creative process going into the film was how do we make this unique and different? You know, like the the, the very, very first day that we shot, like the whole thing almost completely fell apart because um, we were out in the desert. First time being in, in Death Valley, like as a crew, uh, small crew, and the communication was terrible. And I was trying to, like, shoot these shots. Like there's a shot of a, a mariachi or a cowboy running down this hill and then death is on top of it or the, one of the archers and they shoot him and the guy kind of comes down in the foreground and then death comes down there and like raises his sword and swings it down at him. And that was the very first thing that we shot in the film. And it was also the very last thing almost that we shot because we had so much trouble logistically. Like, you know, we didn't think ahead of time like, oh, we should have brought – some kind of like porta potty or something, and we were like out in the desert, and all of a sudden nobody can use the restroom, and we ran out of water, and you know, like just you, you, you going in there logistically is very hard, and um, and I remember one of the actors uh, basically saying, you know, that's it, I'm not coming back. I mean, I'm done. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm done. And even Jeff Falcon was like, it was because uh, the guy was like gonna sue or something, and and so Jeff Falcon goes like, well, I guess you have enough for your your uh, film school, right? Just with this one day, you know, that's it. Let's just call it a day, and we're done. You know, and everybody, everybody was done. I'm like, wait, wait. You know, and 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 uh, and we went back to L.A. And I remember we developed the dailies, and Christian Bernier and I were looking at the dailies, and it was actually that shot, a few other things. And that kind of like really beautiful sequence at the beginning and all the reeds when the kids running through the reeds, which yeah. was shot in a parking lot at Loyola Marymount, actually. That was actually the very first thing we shot. Uh, oh. And yeah, it was, it was a parking lot at Loyola with those like kind of reeds. And we just cut some of them down and made like a little forest and then had them 
you know, it was it was it was about the size of a maybe four feet across, you know, with with then some other reeds in the background on a hill, and it created the sense of depth. But um, but we saw that stuff, and and both Christian and I were like almost in tears. We're like, wow, you know, this it's so good, we can't stop, you know. And and then I was still thinking to myself, my God, how do I do this? And then have like uh, a revolving crew, and I could potentially lose actors, and what am I gonna do? And at the time, we hadn't come up with the concept of death space being this kind of like black slate. You know, it was a it was an actual actor with a hat. You know, like with the big hat. But we noticed when we shot this shot of of uh, death coming down with his sword uh, at the beginning, um, one of the first things we shot that that this, the face was almost completely silhouetted. And, and it was so scary. I mean, it was so scary and interesting. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the answer to my problems. Like, so what if I have if I have actors that don't want to stay, they can leave and I'll get somebody else because I'm not showing their face. And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of like Star Wars or something with Darth Vader's head or a stormtrooper or something. It's the it's the costume that creates this mythology. It's not it's not like the actor itself, you know, usually. And and uh, so we started when we went back to shoot again, we, you know, we used like a black stocking over somebody's face and made sure they were always kind of like backlit and, you know, like that, that kind of a thing. And it was so much better. I mean, it's so much better. The film would have been a completely different film had death actually been played by an actor, you know, and, and, uh, and this way uh, we could all switch out. So like I would be playing a role, like I played an archer, I played, you know, death at one point, like, you know, played all these different characters Jeff Falcon would like throw a punch in the buddy costume, turn around and put on another costume and then do the fall, you know, <laughs> like as if he was a different guy, you know. So, so like those are the types of things that allowed us to do because because uh, we we literally uh, weren't featuring any actors' faces. But that all started because of such a disastrous first day that it just made me realize right away that you know the only way this is going to work is if I don't see anybody else's faces. Except for, you know, Jeff and the kid, really, you know, um, for the most part, because uh, they were the only ones that I knew would, would come back, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like it almost like is a combination of uh, both happy accidents and the style that you were employing, because there's almost like, uh, I hesitate to say like a mythic style, but it's 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 an entire movie like kind of operating purely on like a visual sense at times yeah. to where like you pick up the little, um, let's say, reference points or anything, but it all amalgamates into into, into this very unique uh, work of art. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, it's... Uh, a, a lot of creativity I found in anything that you do, anything in, in, in life, it, it comes out of necessity. You know, sure. it's like you tend to not be very creative if you have a lot of money and a lot of time and no pressure. You know, I mean, the best example of that is like Star Wars Episode One, you know, versus like A New Hope. I mean, you know, it's like when Lucas was forced to work on a budget, he did brilliant things. Like when he has all the money in the world, he just sit there and, you know, it's not as good. But but. Uh, I, that was really a lesson that I've learned many times is, is that, you know, you, you have this vision of how you want it to be. And, and I think as a director, what you do is you, it's all about trying to make sure that the bad movie doesn't actually happen. You know, like, so, so it's like you, you may want something and if you dogmatically just want that and nothing else, then you may break the whole rest of the movie just to get that, you know, but, but if you, if you, 
know where you want to go and and then you're flexible to to bend with the the curves and and figure it all out um sometimes that actually leads to way more creative uh things than than you would have gotten otherwise because you you know you have to take advantage of what you have around you you know like one of the the coolest sequences to me in six string is when um you're in this kind of burned out forest like after a fire and you know he's like when he fights death and he's in all the uh, archers and stuff and um and the russian army that all, all that and uh you know that was because i would drive back and forth from college to central california where i grew up in in the city of delano and uh, on that drive you'd go over the the grapevine you know like the tahone pass there on the five and th that particular year there'd been a horrible forest fire there and and it just burned the hell out of the whole pass. And so you you driving up there, and it just looked like the aftermath of a nuclear war. I mean, it was just black. You know, like all the trees were black and everything. And and so one time I was driving up there, I just got off the road and I went and drove the back roads and stuff and looked around and I was like, man, this is like such a killer set. You yeah. know. And and uh, and and that again and again is what we would do. It's like we literally would be driving along, um, looking at locations, and then see these like big like palm leaves on the ground and then go, wait, 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 stop, stop. These would be great weapons. You know, like pull those, put them in the truck, put them in the truck. You know, <laughs> we would literally like just grab stuff and put it in the truck. And then, and, and I have to give Jeff total credit for uh, something that he probably would never get credit for, which is the uh, costume design. You know, like he he was the uh, production designer, basically a costume designer. So, so he would, uh, I mean, he'd sit there and sew and like make stuff and come up with weapons and, all kinds of stuff that was was really ingenious you know like we we really um, but it was that flow of me being flexible him being flexible everybody sort of just making it work you know like our our favorite phrase on that film was um wouldn't it be cool if you know like wouldn't it be cool if wouldn't it be cool if a guy like looking like buddy holly comes running over this hill followed by like a hundred russians you know it's like that that kind of thing <laughs> well i think that's kind of what makes the movie still resonate uh with so many people all these years later is the fact that it still feels like the product of a bunch of hungry kids in the desert. Yeah. Just yeah. Kind of like you're saying, or like to bring it back to like all of the, the uh, rock and roll that's infused into the movie is that, you know, no great song was ever written when you were happy, you know, right. it always came right. from when you were sad. Right. So, and, 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 and I remember thinking, uh, when I was in the editing uh, editing room, I was sitting with uh, Michael Burns, who was the uh, producer of the movie, and he's he's now at uh, Lionsgate. Um, and and Michael was looking at some of the dailies, and um, and there was one shot that I just really hated, you know, because I knew how the shot had been accomplished, and I didn't like the way I had done the shot, mm -hmm. and the fact that I was rushed when I was losing I was losing light, and I had to get it. And and I said, uh, Michael, you know, who was basically the reason the film had funding at that moment. And and I said, you know, um, I really want to reshoot this shot. I said, I'd love to go back and get this shot again. And he and he goes, what are you talking about? The shot's beautiful. It's perfect. I mean, there's no reason that you need to reshoot that shot. And, and looking back on it years later, he was right. I mean, it's a cool shot. But because I knew how I had done it, I, I wanted to redo it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, it's, and it's like, a, a, but yeah, it's it's only you, I think, as a filmmaker know what goes into making it like nobody else really knows and so it's like my my mantra on that film and i think usually when i do something that's not bad is is that you know you want to take the most simplest thing 
and make it as big as possible. Make it as grand as you possibly can. You know, make it without, uh, you know, with as much room for error as possible. You know, because something will not go right. Something will change. And if it's and if it's simple enough, you can course correct and and then make it work. And if you do something that's so complex, it's just not going to work. You're going to um, wind up losing everything, you know, or it's just going to be bad, you know, and I've had plenty of those experiences too, but, but, uh, um, luckily six string wasn't one of them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, how did, uh, there two questions that bring it back kind of to the music of the movie. Uh, first, is it true that you found the red Elvises on a date? <laughs> you must have read my blog or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, journal, bro. Well, we, we had just decided to do this like post-apocalyptic fifties thing. And, and, uh, um, I got set up on a blind date. Um, and, you know, we were back, it was like one of the weeks where I was back from shooting and, and, uh, and, you know, we would leave again on the weekend and, and, um, I got set up with this like very, um, was a girl from a Christian college. She was like a highly religious girl, you know, when I, one time. But but anyway, uh, we we went to Rusty's Surf Bar. I, I, I literally was just like looking for something to do. And I was like, okay, what do I want to do on this date? And I picked up the LA Weekly and I'm like flipping through it. And, and I see Rusty's Surf Bar, Red Elvises, you know, playing. I thought, oh, cool, live music. It's on the pier. You know, that's cool, cool place to be. It's romantic. So we went to this Rusty Surf Bar. And I remember, I will never forget as I'm walking up the the pier, I'm hearing the sounds of this like electric guitar and like all this like this this music and people chanting and 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 uh, it was a a rock and roll version of Hava Nagila. Wow. You know, it was like Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, and just like playing the guitar and and um and I thought this is so bizarre and I and I I stopped in front of the window and I looked into Rusty's surf bar and there's all these guys on stage and back then the Red Elvises used to wear pompadours. So they had like the black pompadours and these crazy Russian costumes, and and that particular night, I guess there were um, a large number of their Russian friends were in the um, audience, uh, uh, and a lot of them were like acrobats, and so they were in the audience. They were doing these like Russian kicks and like flips and all this stuff. It was like one of the craziest things I'd ever seen. And it's like you know Oleg playing this like giant balalaika, you know, the size of like a, a you know cello, and and. Um, and I was like, we went in, we watched the show. I was like mesmerized. And my date basically had to wait in the back, in the back of the, the place, like, you know, because I, I wanted to stay until it was completely over. Because by the time it was over, I already knew. I was like, this, these guys uh, would be so perfect to do the music. Because, I mean, how can you get more perfect than, like, a post-apocalyptic movie with, like, Russian rock and roll music? You know, it would be just perfect. And and so um, I waited until the very end, and then I went up and I introduced myself, and I said, "Look, I'm just a student. I'm making this film. Would you guys be interested in 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 um, you know providing some of the soundtrack?" And they were just like, "Of course, comrade. Here, you take the CD. You take it. You use whatever you want. It's great, you know." <laughs> and, and 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 then that became my my muse for the rest of the time that I was making the film, um, because even as we were going along, I was still writing and, and, and doing stuff when, in the initial part of the film. And, and, uh, I would just play this, the soundtracks all day long. And, and that helped me formulate more scenes and like what to do with the film. It helped inform like the rhythm of the action and the editing and everything. So it was like totally instrumental, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, and it all did start from just a, a blind date. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then, Brian Tyler. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
How'd you land that one? Because, I mean, obviously he's had a pretty good career thus far. Hey, Brian, <laughs> like the super success story. I mean, you know, it's like I can't I can't get Brian on the phone these days. <laughs> but but uh, Brian, um, there were there was another composer we were looking at out of um, a, a different place. And um, I kept getting these phone calls from this guy, Brian Tyler, at my apartment. Like he would call me and he'd be like, hey, look, I'm a composer. And, you know, and he, he was a really good talker. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm meeting over at Sony, but I, I have some time. Can we meet? You know, you know, he'd throw these like little hints in and like stuff he was doing and everything. And I was like, yeah, you know, and, and I met him and, and we just hit it off like really, really well. Uh, it was, I believe, the first feature film he'd ever done. Oops, sorry. Right, hold on one second. Yeah, it was the it was the first feature film that that Brian had ever composed. Um, Brian started out, I believe, he went to Harvard, and and uh, uh, he would sit on a street corner and play guitar for money, yeah. and and then people would throw money in the guitar case, you know, that kind of thing, and he would write his own stuff and he would sit there and he would play it. And apparently, I mean, it's like a, out of a movie or something. I mean, somebody came up to him and said, you know, wow, you should be uh, composing your own stuff. You're very good. You know, and, and uh, um, I think that led to him getting like a short film or something happening. Uh, and then he became friends with one of the producers of Six Ring Samurai, who had then told him to call me. So, um, so yeah, we we did that. And he had he had done stuff, but it wasn't in the feature film world. I forget exactly what he done, but he was already successful enough to have like a nice studio. And um, and we became friends, and and um, you know we always wanted to work together again, and it just never really happened. But but uh, but yeah, that that he just basically just took off from there. He worked nonstop. Like that's one of the things about being a composer or a cinematographer is that those they can work pretty much all the time. I mean, because they just go from film to film to film to film. You know, it's very different than being like a director or, you know, or a producer where you have to like really shepherd something, you know, and and uh, yeah, no, he's a really great guy. I mean, wicked sense of humor. You know, he he really is. He loves practical jokes and, you know, stuff like that. And, and uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of him for, you know, I mean, he's done everything. I mean, he's like one of the premier composers now. I mean, it's amazing that he, you know, he started out with Six String Samurai. Yeah. And now he's doing Marvel movies. Yeah. He, he's doing movies for the guys who tried to sue you guys or who tried to basically <laughs> make, they made you uh, change your title. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And good for him. Yeah. Now, uh, I'd be remiss just as a fan of that franchise if I didn't ask you about uh, your your entry into the Crow series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> clusterfuck man i mean i, I mean it, it's like the crow first of all what i learned out of that experience was that when you deal with like a major franchise there are very strong personalities involved because uh you know you you have uh people have already made a lot of money on it so so there's there's a lot of pressure uh, you know to something like that and and um i was in a situation where i felt like i was in platoon and I was like, you know, uh, Charlie Sheen and, you know, the child of two fathers. Like on the, on the one hand, you had like a, a, uh, the Weinsteins and, and, and Miramax. On the other side, you had like Ed Pressman. Um, and there was a lot of bad blood between them. And, and, uh, um, and then you also had Jeff Most, who was the 
producer that I was working with the closest on the film and then Ed over here. And there was a lot of um, just back and forth, like like because I was I started writing the project with Jeff, there was jealousy and then there was this weirdness. And 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 uh, it, it led to, I think, a lot of self-sabotage that I think was plaguing that entire franchise, not just my film. You know, just I think it was just a very difficult working environment for anybody, you know, and and uh, and but like once you get involved in developing something and you've spent a lot of time and you've seen it and you want to see it happen, it's very hard to step out of. So so I think I was in a situation where, uh, you know, th there are some things about the film that I'm very proud of. I mean, there's uh, some relationships that I made on the film that were great. I got to work with Dennis Hopper. I got to work yeah. with with Macy Gray, with, with, uh, um, you know, Eddie Furlong was awesome to work with, you know, um, but Eddie had broken his wrist, like, I don't know, a couple months before shooting. And, and, uh, the only way he was able to be insured for the film was if he literally couldn't do anything. So, so it's like, you had to have stunt people do anything that he had to do. He could basically stand there, you know, he couldn't like jump or run or pick up anything or, I mean, it was like crazy, the, the kind of, um, constraints and, and, um, and we were really plagued by a lot of, um, just issues with the film, like, like, uh, stuff like just financing issues and stuff like that. Like, um, at one point they wanted us to go to Spain and shoot, on on uh, some of the old Sergio Leone sets um, that were in Spain left over from the spaghetti western days and um, now this was supposed to be like a cost cutting thing um, but I would have gotten like I think I should I shot the whole film in like 20 days you know okay. like that was supposed to have 23 days and we wasted like three days because financing wasn't even in place and everybody was just standing around uh, but the if I'd gone to Spain I would have gotten like 45 days and I and I look back at that film now and I think God, you know, I I hated the idea of going to Spain. It never would have worked for the actual script itself because it didn't look like America. I mean, we was there would be nothing. It would look completely fake. But now I I kicked myself just as in terms of a fantasy. Um, what I should have done with that film, I should have made it a western. You know, um, like total Sergio Leone western uh, between a a Native American Indian and a and a cavalry person or something. But instead of making the Calvary guy be come back as the crow i would have made emmanuel shariki's character come back as the crow you know the female character and, yeah. and and have the cavalry guy die you know and and then have her come back and take all kinds of revenge or whatever it would have been such a better film and and uh, uh the, the problem was like everything i was just saying about six string samurai i ignored on the crow because it was so complicated there were so many things to do and we didn't have nearly the amount of money and the time and there was so much drama in the making of the film that that by the time you got there it was just like all right just fucking shoot this thing and like, get it over with i mean it, it became like a job as opposed to you know something that was truly creative art and and um and like i said i'm proud of the people that i worked on it you know fred uh fred andrews who was the production designer and jeff and you know so many of the people that i had great relationships with in, in that film but we were really up against, I think, the stigma of it being a crow movie, number one, you know, um, and and sort of like the the history, and uh, and and that ultimately it got the budget got whittled down so much by the time we actually shot that that it it uh, was um, not feasible for what we were doing, you know, and and at the same time I couldn't really change the script, and uh, you, you know there were uh, there's another writer brought in at the last minute to make some changes. 
And um, so there were tonal issues between the first half of the movie and the last part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my original first draft of the script, which was really well received at, at Miramax and, uh, you know, Dimension Films, where, where the, the producers were and uh, um, everywhere by cast and everything, was was a satire. You know, it was not it was not a, a dark, uh, you know, like traditional crow movie. Like my idea was to go in and kind of like really dissect the whole thing. And and uh, I was going to make something that was much funnier and and uh, it had like a really dark sense of humor and was a lot more sort of just cultish, you know, um, you know, in 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 style. And um, and then I think maybe because Jeff uh, Most was one of the writers and there was other producers and there was a jealousy factor going on or something, um, you know, we, we started just getting uh, noted to death. You know, like where, whereas like the script would just get notes and stuff like that. We'd try to make changes and we never knew what, what to change. Um, and then finally it came down to kind of like about a six month battle between um, the producers and Dimension. You know, because Dimension was saying, the, the production company was saying, yeah, the script's great as it is. Why are you keep messing with it? This is the best script in the franchise. Just go make it. And, and, uh, and then meanwhile, uh, <laughs> other producers on the project had brought in. Uh, not Jeff Most, but other producers had brought in um, a completely different writer and wrote a whole different script without telling anyone, you know. And and so th- this became like a total, just complete mess because Dimension hated that script, and and so so they went back and forth uh, for a number of months, and then the final compromise was to bring in another third-party writer to try to meld the two scripts together. And and in the process of doing that, it became this kind of like patchwork, which I think has some tonal issues and problems that I would I would want to fix if I could have. But um, it just became I think a very kind of dyslexic movie, you know, in a way, you know, because it feels to me like like Macy Gray and and uh, Hopper and all those people were in a different movie than while I was making the first half of the movie, you know. So I can see that somewhat, but I also think some of the, let's say, metatextual commentary is still there a little bit, because I always thought your movie was sort of interesting, because it was like, The Crow and your movie is the one that nobody likes. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, so, but anyway, I just had to ask you about that. Now, finally, I I, am going to ask basically every guest who's on this podcast uh, to answer a question that's basically what the podcast is based on is that what would you consider your secret handshake movie? Like what would be the movie that like, say you were at a party, you're Mm -hmm. bored out of your mind. uh, You're having drinks with say like your, your significant other and like her, her, the people that she works with. And you're just like, man, get me out of here. And to just like break the tension, you make a reference to Mm -hmm. some, whatever your secret handshake movie is. And the guy across the cir- the drink circle is like, I got you. Like, I know what you just recognized that. What is that movie for you? Oh man, there's so many, you know, that I could think of, but uh, an easy one is probably Princess Bride. Oh, perfect. Uh, I-, I love Princess Bride. It's like, you know, it, <laughs> there's so many quotable lines, you know, from, from that film, you know, hello, my name is Anugo Montoya. You killed your father. Prepare to die. You know, <laughs> it's just brilliant that movie. That somebody did a uh, a remake of that movie um, using like Skype or something. You yeah, know, uh, just did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How brilliant is that? That's awesome. 
Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy that he pulled it off because it's all basically like uh, famous folks in their homes, like in yeah. quarantine, basically doing individual scenes. And it's like, yeah. I think they're releasing it on like Quibi or something. And like, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. That, what a brilliant idea. It's like to, to do something while there's nothing else that you can do, you know, it's, it's, that's great. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lance, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to talk to you about you, uh, about Six String Samurai. Like, my co-host thought, thinks the world of your movie, and so do the rest of us. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for giving us your time today, man. You're welcome. Oh, and I should also point out, I, I recently did a uh, documentary uh, called um, Third Eye Spies. Uh, right. It's available on um, Amazon, um, you know, Amazon Prime, or it's really anywhere. Uh, you can get it on iTunes or uh, whatever. And, uh, you know, completely different than anything else I've done um, about the uh, government's uh, use of what's called remote viewers, um, which is basically for 20 years, uh, the U.S. government used psychics to spy on the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union used psychics to spy on the U.S. And and so there was a cold war happening psychically, you know, basically, you know, um, which they got like incredible results. I mean, um, the stuff it that like I, a David Cronenberg movie in real life. It is, yeah, and I and I'd love to turn it into a uh, an actual uh, you know narrative film is, is one of my goals. But but um, but it it, uh, it it was blow mind to me. I mean, I spent like a few years making it, and I I uh, went around the world and interviewed several people that were involved with the project that had never been interviewed on camera before. You know, because it, it's only a lot of it has only recently been declassified. So uh, just really like to me, what was so appealing about the movie was. Um, not just the spy versus spy stuff, which is really cool, um, because it, they actually it was very effective. I mean, they got like information that they could not have gotten any other way, basically, by someone sitting in a room and closing their eyes and imagining what 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 existed at a target site that they'd been given. Um, but uh, what it says about humanity and and you know human potential is incredible. I mean, is you know the potentials um, that we really aren't even exploring. I mean, if if you believe what they're saying and what they did you know they did they did some pretty incredible things wow yeah well, we're gonna have to check yeah. it out third yeah. eye spies huh yeah third eye spies on on amazon all right well thank you so much lance i hope you have a great day okay man you too man take care and thank you